In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Um, I might need some help with this lectern because um, unlike what I would normally do, I'm actually going to read a lot of what I've got here in the interest of saving time. That's nice. That's nice. doesn't look too bad from where you are, so. And uh, apologies in advance if, if uh, my dog, Frank, decides to come and join me. He might well do. Um, politically, civilly, racially, and militarily, America in the 1960s was a mess. Uh, it was rifted with divisions, race riots in the South, the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis, a long drawn out a disgraceful war in Vietnam, the shooting of the young president, JFK, hippies blockading the universities and elsewhere, the murder of Martin Luther King, and corruption in Nixon's White House. But throughout this decade, throughout all of this, something was happening, first with thousands and then tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then finally, 400,000 people and 20,000 enterprises came together to make just one thing happen. I was eight years old, and I was glued to the TV, as was my family. I was worried to death. I literally was, remember this. I was worried to death they were going to crash, or actually what I really feared more was they were going to sink beneath the surface, and then around 8 o'clock that evening, I heard Neil Armstrong say, Houston, tranquility base here. The eagle has landed. Man had touched down on the moon. And seven hours later, I was allowed to go to bed and get back up again. 3 a.m. in the morning, 
That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. The first man to walk on the moon. It is undoubtedly one of the most significant memories of my life. And for the estimated 600 million people who watched on TV that night around the world, I'm sure it was for them as well. And for a brief moment, America and mankind forgot its troubles and differences and united in one great celebration. It was and is still perhaps man's greatest achievement. It began with a speech. It began with JFK's um, speech to Congress. Let's hear his words. I believe that... I, I can't do the... He used to stand like this, didn't he? With a big smile. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. And later he added, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Hannah's song, and do turn to it in in your Bibles, Hannah's song is not unlike JFK's speech. It's a rallying call to those who will commit themselves to a task. It's not going to be easy, but it will be hard. So let's take ourselves back to Palestine in the 11th century BC. It's the time of the judges. The nation of Israel was an even worse mess than America in the early 60s. Civilly, politically, militarily, geographically, tribally, and religiously, the nation is divided, corrupt, and unstable. Nevertheless, there are faithful Israelites like Hannah, still putting their trust and hope in God's covenant promise to Abraham. Now, for them, unlike us, this was a future promise, um, a promise that to unite God's people, to become a great and powerful nation, not just for a brief moment, but for once and for all. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That was the hope of Israel that uh, God promised to Abraham. But for Hannah, therein was the problem. Through your offspring. Uh, 1 Samuel opens by explaining that Hannah had no offspring. And so we're going to have to just do a quick review. I'm sorry we haven't had time to read it, but I'll do a quick review of 1 Samuel. Story so far. We are introduced to Elkanah. He has two wives. One is Penina, who has children, and Hannah, who is barren but longs for a son. Each year they go to uh, offer sacrifices at Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and where Eli is the priest, and his sons are the ministers. Year after year they go, and year after year, Penina taunts Hannah um, about her childlessness. Hannah is miserable, troubled, weeping, and has eating disorders, we're told. Hannah pours out her heart in prayer to God and makes a vow. Give me a son and he will be dedicated to the Lord and Nazarite for life. 
God hears her and she has a son, Samuel. After he was weaned, and the commentators tell us that was about three years old, Hannah keeps her promise to take Samuel to Shiloh to serve with Eli and his sons in the tabernacle. Hannah, once again, has no children. And we're told that she's still barren. And it's at this point that Hannah prays the song that we read earlier. I'm guessing, like me, um, your Christian life is full of uh, contradictions. On the one hand, you've received amazing blessings, miraculous interventions of God. And on the other hand, you've made sacrifices and pledges to God that appear to come to nothing. Um, At the house party, I told my own story. Um, Many of you are there, so sorry for the repetition. I told my own story about how after my first wife died, God clearly led me to retire from banking um, and for me only to experience in retirement um, a series of business and property um, setbacks, let's say, uh, that have left me, quite frankly, a little bit at sea. And again, five years ago, God clearly led me uh, or gave me the provision of a new wife. And, uh, and yet, on the last day of our honeymoon, I was struck down with a, uh, the first of a series of depressions that were to plague me and Mary Loss on and off for the next three years. And so it was with Hannah. Um, blessings and obedience were accompanied by sacrifice and suffering. We'll see what I mean. If we want to be a part of his great messianic people, if we want to join the team and be counted, we will do so not not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Um, For Hannah, this this meant giving up her son, so that was very hard. For you, okay... Well, maybe you're lonely and you long for a husband or a wife, um, but you refuse to marry a non-Christian. It's hard. It's hard. Maybe you're giving sacrificially month after month to some cause of the gospel. And that means missing out on holidays or a new car or a better house or a wardrobe. It's hard. Or perhaps like me, you've answered God's call But somehow life has crowded in and you feel like you've been let down. Or maybe even worse, you feel like you've let down God. Okay, that is not an uncommon situation. This is what Hannah faced. How does she deal with it? And how does her song help us? We're going to look at, first of all, what she doesn't say. Secondly, what she does say. Thirdly, what difference it makes. And fourth, what makes it all possible. Okay, so what she doesn't say, she doesn't say anything, she says nothing about the child. I don't know if you noticed that. Mary Loss has a friend who posts on Facebook every day. She is into attachment parenting. I don't know much about that. You may know something about attachment parenting. But on every day, every day on Facebook, she posts pictures of her children. Every day there's a story to tell. I do wonder whether She's going to be doing that in 30 years' time when they're in prison. (laughs) 
just my view of attachment parenting, by the way. Don't take it personally if it's something you you are taking up. Okay. Um, um, I need to uh, digress for a moment. In 11th century um, BC Israel, actually in any traditional um, uh, times uh, or even today, um, sons in many sons at that time gave a woman status. Um, if you didn't have a son, you didn't have status. I mean, obviously, you could have a husband, and that was okay. But if you had a son, that gave you position and pride. It gave you protection and provision. They also, sons also brought security. It's an insurance policy. If your husband dies, you know, are Panina's sons going to look after um, their mum's rival if uh, Elkanah dies? Doubt it. Um, they give you family blessing. Um, it's a delight, a comfort to have a family. Well, that's not changed. We can relate to that in, in our modern times. And finally and uniquely for the Israelites, a son, uh, an offspring, was participation in this forward future covenant uh, Israel that God had planned for his people. Through your offspring, all the earth will be blessed. So to have a son, particularly, and children, was to participate, looking forward into that future, uh, future covenant. Okay, she didn't say anything about these things. She didn't say to God, "Hey, I gave you a son. Now, uh, hey, what about me? What about my shame? My shame continues. My reputation. I've got no status. I've got no security." I've given you my son. She didn't say any of that. Justin Welby discovered in 2016 that he's illegitimate. Thank you for this, please. <laughs> he discovered he was not um, the son of the upstanding Mr. Welby, but some scallywag who was working for Churchill. Um, fortunately, he's an archbishop and not a football referee. The, um, the Telegraph of the 8th, April 8th, 2016, said this. Archbishop Welby, 60, said the revelation of his true paternity had come as a complete surprise, but described it as a story of redemption and hope. He added, I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. Well said, Justin. And that precisely is what Hannah says. We'll see later. Thirdly, she does not complain of her emptiness. She says nothing about her loss. In verse 8, she quotes Psalm 113. Let's look at verse 8 first. He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, and he makes them inherit a throne. Turn, if you would, to page 615 in, in the Bibles. We're going to look at Psalm 113. While you're doing that, I'll read that again. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, and he makes them inherit a throne of honor. If you've got there, we'll read from Psalm 113, verse 7. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. 
verse 9, he settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. This picture of family bliss at the end of uh, the psalm, she doesn't quote. She doesn't quote it because it's not true for her. She could not say those words, and I speculate in her pain and loss. She couldn't bear, couldn't bring herself to add those words to her song. So you might say, well, maybe she doesn't care, or maybe she's happy to send uh, Samuel off to Eli, like sending him off to a nice boarding school. Uh, no, we can hardly say that either. If we drop down to verse 12 of the, of the chapter, so after the song, it says, so it says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Jump to verse 17. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. I had tears in my eyes when I read that. She made him a little robe and took it to him. I bet she spent the whole year making that robe. Why, God, why? Why, when she has already sacrificed so much, why does she, is he put into the hands of these scoundrels, um, Eli's sons? It reminds me of um, one of the stories that Charles would often tell. Uh, it's not the one about the Gestetner machine. <laughs> um, he'd often tell this story. Born in 1828, Horatio Spafford was a prominent American lawyer and a Presbyterian church elder. In 1881, he married Anna Larson. The Spaffords were supporters and friends of the evangelist D.L. Moody. Great people. In 1871, Spafford's four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. In the spring of that year, Spafford had invested in real estate north of Chicago. Come October, the Great Fire of Chicago had reduced the city to ashes, destroying most of Spafford's investment. Two years later, business demands kept Spafford from joining his wife and four daughters on a family vacation in England, where his friend D.L. Moody would be preaching. While crossing the Atlantic, their steamship was struck by an iron sailing vessel killing 226 passengers, including all of Spafford's daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy. As Spafford sailed to England to join his wife, approaching the spot where his daughters were lost, Spafford wrote the lyrics of the hymn, It is well with my soul. I would argue that Horatio Spafford had learned to sing Hannah's song. So what does she say? I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time. But in verse 1 she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My satisfaction is is in the Lord. My strength is in the Lord. And then she goes on to spell it out in, in the song, in the following seven verses. And I'll just paraphrase. Verse one. My salvation, my security is not in a son, it's in the Lord. My son is not my hope. 
God is my strength and my protection. My pride and my trust are not in my future offspring. God sees my heart and will not cut me off. My protection and strength are in God, not in the protection of a man or a son. My provision, pension, are not provided by a son but by the Lord. My trust is in the Lord who provides the barren with children in any way. My security is in you. God, verse 6, has the power over life and death, even if my name dies out. Verse 7, my provision, status, and pride are all in the Lord. Just like Justin Welby, she knew uh, where uh, her hope was. She knew who her rock was. Okay, what difference does it make if we sing this song, if we do not say those things, if we do say the other things? When Hannah sings this song, she has nothing to show for her faithfulness. She's got no children at home, no comfort of knowing that Samuel's being well looked after. He probably isn't. And on a wider scale, Israel is in a mess, in a cycle of sin, disobedience, and judgment. Much of the land is still under enemy control. The tabernacle, as we see, is being run by crooks, and there's no sign of God's promised covenant people. Nevertheless, in verse 10, she prophesies, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Right now, uh, Israel can't even conquer the Philistines. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and ambiguously, in verse 10, he will give strength to the king. What? King? There was no king in Israel. Uh, There never had been. And there certainly wasn't at that point. But the story of Samuel and Hannah is the beginning of God's covenant promise. Uh, Hannah's song is like JFK's speech at the beginning of the 60s. And we know um, the story. That boy in the linen ephod was to become a young man called of God. Remember the story of how he's called three times and he goes to, wakes up Eli thinking it's Eli calling him. And then that young man becomes the judge, the prophet, and the priest of Israel. And the priest who anoints Saul, Saul, Israel's first king. And then David, the long-awaited king, who would see Israel finally established as God intended. This is JFK's speech to Congress. This is his rallying call to the crowds at the Rice Stadium. This is Hannah's song that literally launches the new kingdom of Israel. This, if we make Hannah's song our song, we'll see amazing things. We'll see breakthrough. And um, so back to, back to the story. Interesting, but Charles never told this bit, and I think it's probably the most significant part of the story. In the following years, Anna Spafford, we're talking about, gave birth to three children, Horatio, Bertha, and Grace. Horatio died at the age of three. The following year, Spaffords went to Jerusalem as a party of 13 adults and three children to set up an American colony. Joined by Swedish Christians, they engaged in philanthropic work among the poor of Jerusalem, regardless of their religious affiliation, gaining the trust of local Muslim, Jewish, and Christian communities. The work continued, the the American colony continued in the 20th century. In November 1914, when Palestine became a battleground, the American colony performed a crucial role in supporting the local populace through the war. When German-Turkish armies retreated, they took over the prison. As famine and disease ravaged Jerusalem, the colony was engaged in relief work. 
They ran a soup kitchen. They fed thousands during these desperate times. When General, General Allenby entered Jerusalem in December 17, the colony offered their philanthropic services to new, the new rulers of Palestine and continued to serve their, their fellow Jerusalemites. After the war, the colony also ran an orphanage to provide for the children torn from their parents during World War I. The charitable work begun by the Spaffords continues today in the original colony house abutting the walls of the old city. Spafford's Children's Centre provides medical treatment outreach programs for Arab children and their families in Jerusalem. The American colony closed in 1950, but since then, the, sec- it's be- the second home of the colony outside the city walls has functioned as a hotel named the American Colony Hotel. Sitting as it does on the border between East and West Jerusalem, even today the hotel provides a common meeting ground for the opposing factions in today's troubled and divided Palestine. Uh, my late wife, Meta, and I stayed at that hotel. It is by far the best hotel in Jerusalem. Um, as Tony Blair was to discover when he, when he moved his peace mission into the King David and then found there was something better going on right on the border, which suited his. So he, t- he, he has a whole floor of the hotel. It is a great hotel. My point, breakthrough. Out of great sadness should not just come a song, but it starts with a song. And we see breakthrough. And God's amazing work continues. So, I've lost place in my notes. Sorry about that. (laughs) Okay. Um, Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or feels for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The Spaffords had lost a lot of children but they gained a lot more. Some of them were in the orphanage, some of them were in the prison, some of them were deprived. And by the way, Hannah also had five more children after this. There's Breakthrough. Sing the song of Breakthrough. Four, for those who are taking notes, what makes it all possible. Hannah doesn't only speak of a future king, she speaks of an anointed king. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the first use of the word Messiah in the scriptures. Christos, if you're reading the Greek um, translation of the scriptures. She looks forward to, it says in verse 5, seven children. Oh, what's that? Seven children. The baron shall have seven children. Samuel, she has five, five more. That's six. She speaks of another child dedicated from birth, another boy in an ephod a one-piece garment, placed in the hands of wicked men, scoundrels. But there was no little robe for this child. No little robe. His clothes were divided. And because the ephod is a one-piece garment, they, they cast lots for that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says. What then shall we say in response to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Sing Hannah's song as Stafford did. We choose to follow our anointed king, not because it's easy, because it's hard. Thank you.